Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Today we bring you part one of our February 24, 2019 live radio broadcast from the Everglades. Greetings. Today is February 24th, 2019. Welcome to the Everglades. We are streaming live on Jolt Radio from the porch at the Ernest Coe Visitor Center in Homestead, Florida. I'm Kathy Bird, founder and artistic director of Fresh Art International. And we are celebrating here the Everglades and the great wilderness that surrounds this center. I want to give right now a deep bow to artists in residence in Everglades. Deborah Mitchell is here beside me. She's an artist and the creative director of ARI. Hello, Kathy. I am the ARI Fellow for the month of February, and you will find out more about ARI shortly. It's existed for quite a while now, and many of us have come and gone gaining great inspiration and doing amazing projects from our time here. Fresh Art International is a podcast and a radio show that explore our cultural landscape. We engage at the center and fringe of art scenes around the world. I would say this is the closest to fringe as I've done in my journeys to capture stories of contemporary art and culture. I've spent the last three weeks embedded in the Everglades, exploring, listening, recording, and just taking in all that I can of South Florida's vast subtropical wilderness. I've been ambling, I've been hiking, slogging, canoeing, biking, and I've followed tours and talks and sparked countless conversations to collect the stories you'll hear today. This is an amazing, inspiring, and endangered place. And it's the only one that exists known as the River of Grass. Jack Tamul and James T. Miller, the artists that recorded the sounds you just heard, they took those field recordings at Taylor Slough, from, and it comes from their album, Voices of the Everglades. And on this special two-hour show, we'll introduce more sounds from the South Florida wilderness, and you'll hear rangers, volunteers, guided tours on the Anhinga Trail, evening talks, and much more. You'll meet past and future Airy Fellows, importantly and hear how the Everglades has informed and inspired their music, their sound art, performance, and poetry. So, Deborah, thank you for being here with me today. It's an honor. I'm very pleased to be here with you. You are a tremendous resource for those of us who come here, and you have many years of working with Ari. Yes. You know, ARI has been around since 2001, so it won't be long till we're on our 20th anniversary. All this time, we've been having between 10 and 12 artists per year, and they come and stay in a very modest uh, live-work space here in the Everglades National Park. I joined about six years ago, first as a board member, and for five years, I was executive director. So ARI exists as a support system for the artist in residence in Everglades program. What does that mean? That means we fundraise, we organize outreach, and we help the fellows have a, a richer experience while they're in residence. Uh, the reason I think that my, my board feels this is so important 
is that South Florida is home to the most precariously situated cities on the globe, which are on the front lines of global climate change. Additionally, the region has battled decades of man-made interventions, which have affected the flow of clean water and the very culture of the indigenous people living in the glades, and also the urban dwellers who are now demanding clean water. So while in residence here, our artists can explore and research really how the water flows and affects different communities, all the way from the headwaters up in Kissimmee, through Lake Okeechobee, down through Water Area Conservation 3A, and right up here to the tributaries of the Taylor and Shark River Slough, ending in Florida Bay. I think that that's the whole thing. They get one month of time of research. Those of you who aren't here listening in, you're going to hear some wind because it's breezy. Describing where we are right now is a special guest, Leon Howell. And Deborah's going to introduce him. Come on over, Leon. Come on in, Leon. I am actually so delighted to welcome Leon to our, our program today, Kathy. Leon had over 15 years uh, being a fishing guide in Everglades National Park, actually the Florida Bay, Cape Sable region, Flamingo. And he's had over 15 years' experience uh, as a ranger now in the park. And, and one of the things I personally love about Leon is that I may be installing an exhibit, for example, and he'll always knock on the door and come and say hello and check out what we're doing. In some cases, he really has experience firsthand of, for example, what maps looked like 30 years ago of Florida Bay and how that area has changed. So he's a very, very valuable resource for Aerie. Welcome, Leon. Well, I'm delighted to be here as well. The park itself uh, certainly is notable uh, for many reasons. It was the first park established in this country in recognition of and preserved biology, as opposed to geology like our great western parks or history like our battlefields. It's the third largest national park in the lower 48 states. It took it a while to come to realization. The idea of a national park here was being whispered in the 19-teens. It became a bigger idea in the 20s. In late 20s, and then in the 30s, it became a big idea, and people like Ernest Coe and uh, Marjorie Douglas and a cast of others persisted, and they had to persist because there was a lot of resistance, until the park was finally dedicated in 1947. Much smaller than Ernest Coe wanted. He almost didn't come to the dedication, but he did come, and today the park has expanded a little bit to become the third largest national park in the lower 48 states. It's a unique park. It's a biological park. It presents one of the largest and best developed mangrove forests in the world. A lot of people envision this national park as a deep, dark swamp with hungry serpents waiting to uh, ambush you. It's really a lot of kinds of places. We feature tropical hardwood forest, a pine rockland, a unique pine forest with an uh, interesting blend of tropical and temperate plants, the mangrove forest that I already mentioned, coastal beaches on the southwest corner, coastal prairies around Flamingo, and square miles and square miles of freshwater prairie that are wet in the summer, dry in the winter, and dotted with tree islands of various sizes, shapes, and kinds. Willow heads, bay heads, hardwood hammocks, and cypress stones. So much more than a deep, dark swamp. A very diverse place with many habitats, which translates to a long list of animals and plants that uh, accompany us when we visit the park. There are a lot of activities that people can take advantage of in the park. This time of year, we have a long list of programs. We do guided walks, generally science and nature themes, but some history. We have some more in-depth programs like canoe hikes with the Flamingo Rangers, off-trail wet walks, bike hikes through the Pine Rockland, some evening programs, the night hike on the Anhinga Trail to see if we can spot alligator eyes. But mostly, to me, this park offers the perfect respite from the dissonance of modern society. Ernest Coe called it his great empire of solitude. I love the place. Thank you, Leon. Thank you so much. Beautiful. We've had quite an adventure. Is this a big alligator? <laughs> right there. Uh, John Kenye is here, by the way. I want to tell you this, the founder of Jolt Radio. 
So he's freaking out over here. You just saw an alligator. <laughs> We're really happy that John has brought forth this great equipment and set us up to sound so good on the air. Last night, we had an amazing adventure, some of us. We were lucky that Deborah Mitchell and Houston Cypress hosted us on a journey in Big Cypress. We were tribal members, environmental activists, artists, curators, and scientists that gathered to think about the role of creativity in the past, present, and future of these wetlands. And as we gathered around a campfire on a place called Grandmother's Island, Celeste de Palma reported in on the Kissimmee River Restoration Project. Do you want to introduce Celeste? We'll hear her voice recorded in a moment. Celeste Palma is the policy advisor for Audubon. Her credentials are, are very, very lengthy. She advises several organizations on the state of the water flow and what can be done in terms of the legislature to improve it. I was first introduced to her a couple of years ago through the scientist Paul Gray, who has been an amazing supporter for our artists, as you know, Kathy, out on Lake Okeechobee. So through the data that they are collecting up and down the Kissimmee, Lake O, in the Everglades, big cypress everywhere, she is able to properly advise our, our legislators. So let's hear what she had to say last night by the campfire. These are America's Everglades, but they're really the world's Everglades. If you think about it, the Everglades is the largest wetland in North America. It is home to more than 350 species of birds. It's the most significant breeding ground for wading birds in the country. And it also has a very special place worldwide because the Everglades act as stopover habitat for birds that are migrating along the Atlantic coast, all the way from Canada to places as remote as Tierra del Fuego in Argentina and then back up. So this is a critical stopover habitat for those birds and it's incredibly rich in biodiversity. And Shingle Creek is where the Everglades were born. Um, and from there, the water just used to serpentine down the Kissimmee. Then the water would overflow the banks of uh, Lake Okeechobee and then slowly travel all the way down south through what we call the River of Grass and then come out through Florida Bay. We ditched, drained, and dyed the Everglades to give way to agriculture and to development. And we lost 50% of the wetlands in this ecosystem. And today I'm going to focus on the Kissimmee River Restoration Project. With its success, we were able to say, if we build this project, the birds will come back. So here you have a picture of the Kissimmee River Free Restoration. I did mention how that river used to serpentine. It was beautiful with its oxen bows. But the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers came in and they decided to straighten this river for ease of navigation. And that essentially turned this river into a highway for dirty, polluted water to just come rushing straight into the Everglades. And so through restoration, here you have a picture of the early stages, and you can see on the left-hand side the backfill canal. And on the right, you see the river starting to meander once again, starting to take shape. Here's the same image, and you can see the beginning of the rehydrating floodplain. And very, very soon after that happened, we had this. We had birds coming back by the thousands, faster than anybody anticipated, and far surpassing ecosystem restoration targets. We were able to basically determine that something that humans broke can actually be fixed. This is kind of a story of hope uh, for all of us that are working in trying to bring back to life this magical ecosystem. That was an amazing chance to hear from Celeste, and it made everybody feel kind of hopeful <laughs> to hear that story. The Miami Book Fair celebrates Native American culture and recognizes the power of nature, spirituality, memory, and the splintered history of America's indigenous peoples by selecting How We Became Human by Joy Harjo for the Big Read. Oh, Kathy, you know what? I would like to add that that really encompasses the first quarter century of her career and draws together contemporary reservation life with the beauty and sensibility of nature, Native American culture, and mythology. And this year, we're, we're really, really excited to partner with the Book Fair. We have some folks from the Book Fair with us here today. 
Thank you for joining us. Uh, they reached out to us and connected us with this concept of this amazing book. And uh, we thought it would be a great opportunity to get everyone together. And that is the wonderful connection with our special guest today, Betty Osceola. So I believe she's here to share some stories of conservation efforts underway to protect the Everglades and the indigenous way of life. Before she talks, Grant Livingston last night recited one of Joy Harjo's poems and we're gonna hear it right now. There is a small mist at the brow of the mountain. Each leaf of flower, of taro, tree and bush shivers with ecstasy. And the rain songs of all the flowering ones who have called for the rain can be found there flourishing beneath currents of singing. Rain opens us like flowers or earth that has been thirsty for more than a season. We stop all of our talking, quit thinking or blowing sacks to drink the mystery. We listen for the breathing beneath our breathing. This is how the rain became the rain. How we became human. I'm glad to, to be asked to speak today, and I was sorry that I, I missed last night. I, but I was out cooking by a fire, so keeping our some of our traditions going. Being a part of the Mikusuki tribe and also um, relatives with the Seminole tribe, indigenous people, I know we say human beings, but for us, I always grew up uh, knowing that and being taught that we're natural beings in a natural world, where we are a part of the natural system. And we have to look out for our relatives, the bird, the alligator, the snakes, the panther. We have clan systems, and I'm of the panther clan. So we have that connection with our animal relatives and also the elements. We have the wind clan and the different clans, so we are always cognizant that we are natural beings. As an indigenous person, we're always taught that we don't own the land, we belong to the land. I heard earlier, you know, about the America's Everglades. No, it's the Everglades of Mother Earth and one of her children of Mother Earth. So we look at our siblings that we have to protect them. And as a grandmother of a panther clan, we're the warriors of our, our people. I was always taught growing up that we have to stand up and protect our people and our people happens to be the environment, the natural world around us in all aspects of that. So that's our part of our responsibilities to protect the environment because we're only borrowing this time and we're making our history. Just in case you didn't hear her name if you just came in, this is Betty Osceola. She is a member of the Miccosukee tribe and the Panther clan, as she just said. She works in the Everglades nearby and has a mission for her life, as you can hear, to protect the land of her ancestors for future generations. We asked her to come to share this deep knowledge of the region with us and to celebrate Joy Harjo's book as well. What a beautiful poem that was. I would love to know more about some of the actual projects that you've done. I know you've done a walk for Mother Earth and a water ceremony at Lake Okeechobee. Uh, it's almost about a month now, myself. When my uncle was alive, Bobby C. Billy, another uh, a spiritual uh, leader to our people, he was also involved in activism. It's been about four years now. We're to bring uh, highlight to different issues here that was impacting our homelands and our people. He did a walk, and a group of us walked with him, and out of that was Walk for Mother Earth. This past year, we walked the entire 
area of Lake Okeechobee in seven days to pray for the water. For us indigenous people, you're actually praying for all of the elements of the natural system when you do that because everything is connected by water. And when you pray for water, it renovates out to all these other uh, systems. Along the way, you know, uh, we were told that it would be impossible. There's no way we could walk it in seven days. But seven days later, uh, we finished the walk. And we also, at the same time, did a live stream every morning where we did a global prayer. So we had people from different parts of the world praying with us in the morning and throughout the day to actually send our prayers globally. We were praying for all of Mother Earth. I've also walked across the Everglades three times to bring highlight to the issues of the Florida Everglades. I've taken uh, people out to film the Everglades and recently was part of, it aired on PBS, The Swamp. And I was interviewed for that and some of the film footage of the Everglades, because uh, I, I drive an airboat. So I took PBS out, the film crew out, to film um, different scenes of the Everglades that they weren't able to capture here in Everglades National Park. There's a, another, uh, I think, an Aerie participant that is working on a documentary that I've taken her out to get different film footage. And she actually walked two days with us during our walk. So that might make it into her documentary of what she's working on. That's uh, Sasha. Wurzel. That's right. I was going to ask you about her. She wrote in this book right here, we have from the Airy Lab, an artist's log, and she wrote that you told her, in order to heal the land, we must heal ourselves. That's very true. We have a saying that in order to heal yourself, you have to return to nature. Kind of uh, the gentleman that spoke earlier from the, the Park Service if you ever notice, if you get away from all the distractions of the city life and you go into nature and you're listening to the wind, and it's very alive because it's a living system. Our elders have taught us to heal yourself, you have to go back to nature because it's alive. It has a lot of healing, calming properties. So I did tell her that because it is true. Humanity needs to heal itself so that we lessen the demands and we relearn how to coexist with nature. Thank you for joining us, Betty. Thank you for inviting me. One of the first mornings I was here, I was invited onto a tour, a, a trail walk on the Anhinga Trail. How many of you have been to the Anhinga Trail? Okay, well, if you're lucky, you might have gotten one of the artists that I, uh, artists, I call him an artist because he's so creative the way he tells the stories of the trail. Daniel Agudelo. This is the roseate spoonbill. It's pink in color. Do you guys want to guess why it might be pink? To alert predators to maybe scare them away? Maybe. Hide from flamingos? Hide from flamingos, maybe. Does it eat crustaceans? It eats crustaceans. Yeah, you are what you eat. So it eats a crustacean that gives it that red pigment, like the flamingo. So when you see a baby roseate, it's not going to be pink until it you know, has kind of absorbed enough nutrients to allow it to have that color. But what's even cooler than the color is the shape of its beak. It's shaped like a spoon, hence the name spoonbill. So when this bird eats, it's a very unique way of feeding. It's called the tactile feeding. They rely on their sense of touch. So what they'll do is they'll open up their beak, submerged underwater, and they'll just move around from side to side. Once they'll feel something, they'll kind of close their beak and capture. It's like fishing with a blindfold on. It's not easy. Then we've got the Anhinga. So this is the famous Anhinga Trail because of all the Anhingas that we will see and that we have been seeing. Those are the birds that like to extend their wings out. Why do, you, why do you think they're extending their wings out? Are they uh, showing off their tattoos or their muscles? To dry, yeah. So this anhinga is a very cool bird. The feathers are waterproof, which means it allows it to dive underwater and catch fish that usually aren't caught by floating birds like ducks. But the bad thing is that since the feathers are waterproof, you have to rely on the sun to dry up. It's kind of a source of thermal regulation. Um, this and Hinga in particular is the male and Hinga. First, because it has that black neck. Second, because you see the blue eyeliner. 
this is the time of year that Anhingas are looking for other Anhingas to start families. You will see all these black Anhingas kind of with gelled up perched hair trying to show off um, to the female Anhingas and it's very 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 sweet. What the male Anhinga will do is the male Anhinga will get a little branch, a little twig and fly onto the female um, in hopes that she will be impressed by his twig. Sometimes she'll say, no, that twig I don't like. Bye, next suitor. So it's a very unique kind of um, mating process. But if you notice, the Anhinga had a sharp beak. You guys probably picked up the theme that these birds rely on their beaks. So this is a sharp kind of beak. What it does, it'll pierce the fish right in the middle. Hopefully the fish isn't too big, which will mean that the Anhinga can then slowly eat it. Uh, but there are times that the fish can be too big, and so you see Anhinga try and get the fish out of its beak and then swallow it. Birds were almost in the brink of extinction because in the early 20th century, feathers were a thing. One ounce of feathers was worth more than one ounce of gold. Five million birds would die every single year to satisfy the fashion industry of feathers. James Audubon, famous naturalist, um, once said that he looked up in the sky and the sky had turned completely black because of all the birds flying overhead and covering the sun for a brief two seconds. Can you imagine seeing something as magnificent as that? You know, unfortunately, we will never have that opportunity. But the good thing about national parks is that maybe our great-great-grandchildren will have that opportunity 100 years down the line. Um, we have had our first um, report of a super colony of ibises. We haven't seen a greater amount of ibises um, nest and root in the national parks since the 1940s. The next experience you're going to have is with Gustavo Matamoros. He's a Miami-based sound artist who had a residency here. What year was that, Deborah? I think it was 2013. Yeah, he created this amazing piece, and I did an episode, 60 Minutes, with him about his sound work in Miami Sound Chamber that used to be on Lincoln Road on Miami Beach. And we have extracted here the results, the impact of his experiences in the Everglades. I had a, a month-long residency, IRA residency, in 2013 in the Everglades. And many of these recordings were made then, and I went back and made some others. When you hear these sounds, they don't really belong together in the same time, in the same place. These are actually all from the park, but some are morning sounds, others are dusk sounds, and some are three o'clock in the morning sounds, which are my favorite, and, and so on. And so think of this as a party in the Everglades where everybody's invited and they're all kind of sharing the same space at the same time.
Wow. To me, that's poetry. While Gustavo was in residence, it was October, and it was an extremely rainy year. Although he has returned to do alternate evening recordings, I think being in the rainy season really does change someone's experience. So we just want to take this moment to do a shout-out and let our listeners that aren't here hear from you that are here with us at the Everglades. Say hello to our listeners. Thank you. That's great for people to know we've got an audience. I love having live audiences for these experiences. And this is a marathon, by the way. It's the longest live radio show I've done so far. The first remote one I've been able to do with John in the room or on the porch, because I usually do this by myself when I'm traveling. So what a thrill. And what a thrill to have you here, our friends. And Deborah's going to recognize a few of the people that we know that are here, and I will do the same. Well, I'm very honored to have a few of our board members here today. Uh, the president of the board, Valerie Grace Ricordi, is here. Gallerist Tyler Emerson Dorsch, curator Tommy Cotts Freeman. Maybe I don't see someone in the back, but thank you all for supporting. Because being a supporting organization for the park takes a great deal of input from the community. It's not just one or two people calling the shots. So we're very grateful for those board members who really come out and support us consistently. We've got Ombretta Agro here from Art Sale, another wonderful nonprofit in town. Artists, book fairy folks. Olivia's here. Yeah, Maria Thompson as well. Yes. Welcome. Olivia took me on my sluice log. I have photos to prove it of my gunked up feet after two hours of walking on this beautiful cypress stone with her. Thank you for taking me out. And of particular interest with Olivia is uh, that she really loves art. And she started to work in the park about six to eight months ago, perhaps. And she jumps into the gallery every chance she can and asks me all sorts of questions about the next artist and when she can learn more. So it's really been wonderful to have someone so engaged. And, and Maria Thompson behind her is our inter person here in the park. So she's a great asset as well, bringing added value to all the programs. And we don't want to forget to mention our airy people back there, Giselle and Sarah Michelle. You see Welcome. Giselle has been with Ari for over seven years. Even when Christy Gast, the former president, was volunteering in that position, Giselle was sorting through applications with her back then. And as you know, we're just delighted to welcome Sarah Michelle Rupert as our interim executive director. Excellent. Oh, Barbara Hedges, we're about to introduce you. Oh, perfect timing. Barbara Hedges is a volunteer at the Everglades for 10 years now. And she is a very special friend to Ari. And Deborah, I bet you want to point out a couple of reasons we love Barbara. Sure. Uh, first and foremost, Barbara has volunteered for over 10 seasons in the Everglades National Park. For those of you who don't know, a park like this really breathes during the winter because hundreds of volunteers come down from all over America to, to help run these programs. So we, we thank them all so much. Yes, give her a big hand. And they work hand-in-hand hand with the rangers. It's, it's very invigorating. It truly is. And in Barbara's case, though, she's become almost, a, again, an informal ambassador for the Artists-in-Residence program. Very informal. Very informal, but that's kind of beautiful because she takes everybody's dinners, invites them for a glass of wine or to go hiking. And in some cases, she's actually helped set up the camera for British photographer Rebecca Reeve when she was shooting for the billboards or helped Caterina Tiazzoldi, the Italian-American architect that teaches at Columbia who was here in residence. I think there were a lot of hilarious stories from that residency, right, Barbara? And Barbara last... took me on my bike hike. Oh, so great, great. that was super fun. Well, I think we really wore her out in January because she was like the godmother to the agile rascals. So that was quite a story. And but you will hear from them later. Great, great, in great. The show. So today we are streaming on Jolt Radio from the Everglades. I'm Kathy Bird with Fresh Art International. Barbara Hedges, to bring her up again, was one of the two leaders of night talks or evening talks that I went to on Long Pine Key in the campground at an amphitheater. It looks like an outdoor movie theater with benches. She has created, talk about creative people working here, a special talk about the Everglades in popular culture. We have a bit of that to share with you right now.
Alright, so let's start and think about the first time you heard about the Everglades. Okay, maybe you were a kid and you played this game called The Chase. And in this game, two dogs chase two rabbits through the Everglades. Child's game. Now, do we have rabbits in the Everglades? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, we'll talk more about that later. Alright. Uh, maybe it was a postcard you got from that uncle that was always traveling. Or maybe you got a postcard of this lovely lady in the Cypress. Maybe it was a plate like this that hung in your grandma's kitchen. Maybe it was a TV show called Gentle Ben. And let's see if anybody remembers this. Dennis Weaver is a game warden in the Everglades, and he has a wife, a son, and a pet bear named Ben. There's a whole genre of alligator horror movies out there. This is that Gary Cooper movie, Distant Drums, about the Seminole War. So let's just watch this clip here. What, do you know what the first movie it was used in? No, this one. Oh, I'll play it for you. I got it. One more time. Okay. So, um, to date, when I put this together a couple years ago, it was like 201. Now it's up to 380 films. So, we've looked at these things and we see that, you know, the reality is different from the perception of the Everglades. So why does the Everglades capture our imagination? And I think it's because the Everglades has everything a good story has, okay? It has darkness. It has struggle. It has love, romance. This is going on right now at the Anhinga Trail, or Anhinga's. Uh, it has mystery. Drama, for sure. Survival. And as Marjorie Stoneman Douglas said, there are no other Everglades on this planet. So all those things add up to making a good story. Beautiful, right? The darkness, struggle, mystery, and survival stories that Barbara was sharing are echoed in the orchid stories that I heard one night in the campground. Ranger Emily Wong, the seasonal ranger that's working here for the first time, tells orchid stories. History of orchids here in the Everglades, it's a, a little bit of a dark history. Orchids were actually one of the first resources here in South Florida to be exploited. There were a lot of orchid hunters, and what would happen a lot of times is that they would go into certain areas and they would hunt, be hunting for this this certain species that they were looking for. And once they found it, they would collect it and burn down where they found it so that no other orchid collector could get it. And so what puts the value of the orchid that you have at a lot higher than it was before. That is kind of how they went about things and that is why the destruction with the whole orchid trade was really terrible and really dark. There are about 100 to 120 uh, species of orchids found in Florida. Four of them are endemic to Florida, which means that they are only found here in Florida. We do have the ghost orchid. and This orchid is very rare. It is endangered, and it only is pollinated by one single species. It's called the giant sphinx moth. And it is also epiphytic, and it only blooms in the month of June and July. And so people died for this orchid. The orchid trade is a pretty rough, rough field. Emily got me thinking about ghost orchids, and I've been out several seasons in a row 
checking them out near Big Cypress and Fakahatchee, and I spoke to Mike Owen last week, and you know what he said? One was actually blooming in January this year, which I had never heard before. One day, I shadowed two of the hydrologists from the Everglades, and we went out on the Gulf in a boat for the day, navigating around a myriad of mangrove islands to measure data at four water stations. Deborah says Steve Tennis, our next guest, has a connection with orchids. Biologists are thinking a little bit about climate change, shifting pollinators, collapsing pollinator systems, and then some of it is just a mystery. And that's why collecting data from these stations that are out in the backcountry is so important. And, and with regards to Steve, as you know, Kathy, we are just delighted to have him help the artists get into the backcountry on those waterways. Welcome, Steve. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. We're going to start Steve's moment with us with the sounds of my time out on the water with him. These are hydrologic monitoring stations that the park uses for their modeling and certain other agencies use for triggers for different water releases. They collect the stage of the tide, rainfall, water temperature, conductivity, and salinity are the standard component out here. And so Adam comes once a month unless the government is shut down. Once a month, yeah, this is a, a two-month year. Um, didn't make it out in January, but so far everything's looking okay and we're getting our calibrations in and downloading our data. The design of these is is really interesting. This one is really low. We could step right off the boat onto it, but the last one was quite elevated. That one's about 12 feet high off the mean low water. And that's for storm surge. The ones close to the coast are up in the 10 to 12 foot range, and the further we get from the coast, they get shorter and shorter. The storms in 2005 took out half our network, and we've recovered almost no data. When Irma came through in 2017 now, we recorded the storm surge with unprecedented detail. It had never really been done before, apparently. Let's describe the design itself. Just what are we looking at? Well, the station is built on a, a basic pyramid, trying to get the greatest strength we can with the least amount of materials. This is all built in wilderness, so we have to be as minimalist as possible. The platform on top houses the shelter where we maintain the battery and some of the sensors, the ones that aren't in the water, and the satellite transmitter and a data logger. There's an antenna pointing off the back that actually transmit the, the signal, the data off to a satellite every hour. There's a silver cylinder on the side that's our tipping rain can and a big, thick, piece of culvert pipe sticking down into the water that's called a stilling well. And that stilling means it stills the water. That's where the float for the stage recorder rests. So you have to still the water so you're not measuring the wave height, the actual tide. So tell me where we are, Adam. Uh, so we're in the Buttonwood Canal, about a mile from Flamingo, and uh, yeah, just heading home. How many miles did we travel? Oh, I'm not sure. What do you think we did today, Steve? It's about a hundred mile. About a hundred mile loop. Yeah. So this was one of our one of my longer routes here. Uh, so it's okay for me to be tired. It is okay for you to be tired. Yeah. It's been really a great adventure. We've seen some wildlife. Yeah, I saw some dolphins. Bunch of birds, couple spoonbill, gators, yeah, yeah. All in a day's work. That was Steve and Adam Thyme. They work together as hydrologists. And Adam is the one that goes out every month. Sometimes Steve goes with him. They invited me to join them. So Steve's here today to tell us a little bit more about, like, what is with this measuring of water? I mean, why? 
Well, you have to keep track of what's going on out there, and this is a water park, so it's uh, we keep track of it in quite detail. I guess what it, what will it be used for specifically? The stations are being used as uh, sea level rise gauges because they've expected to last the long term and be a benchmark for that. Some of our data is used for triggering water releases. We can't release water if, if the Cape Sable's Eastside Sparrow is still nesting, for instance. So there's some critical reasons it's used. We know that FIU does a lot of research out here. Do you, does the park work with that data and FIU? There's extensive data sharing between FIU, University of Texas, the Park Service, the U.S. Geological Survey, Water Management, Army Corps of Engineers. We use each other's data. Okay. Have there been changes identified through those water stations? There's been a noticeable difference in the distribution, the yearly distribution of our water. Rainfall, for instance, we've been able to track where we're getting less rain in the summer and more in the winter. These are important for management decisions on how the birds are going to feed and when we get our water, how Florida Bay is going to be affected. Thank you so much for your work. It's so valuable, not only to the park and the other agencies involved, but to our artists. And, and the fact that we can always call on you to get them out in the boat monthly is, is, a, is just a, a real blessing. So thank you. We enjoy it thoroughly. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, our next guest is someone Steve took out. Christina Pedersen. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you, Steve. Christina is a Miami-based artist whose drawings, sculptures, and performances reference classic mythology, literature, and other South Florida subjects more and more, it seems to me. Yes. It's, being at Aerie was certainly a life-changing experience for me. You know, I've, I'd never had to be convinced to love the Everglades growing up here, but... Living here for a month really changed everything for me. There's a huge, long history of people who have lived within it. And at first, it was, led me to sort of be looking for artifacts within the park, of which there are very few. And so it really became more about speaking with scientists and exploring with them and realizing that the history is within the landscape itself, the history of the Earth's movements and the flora and fauna and how the lessons of... Uh, human effect on it is in the water itself. It's in the rocks and the trees. Even though I may miss having some of those structures, like we all wish we could see those flamingo houses <laughs> for a brief moment, we are far more fortunate to be able to see a landscape which has basically existed as our ancestors saw it. There's a lot more to be gained from that than anything else. One of the things that was so amazing to me was just the experience of being here at night in particular when the when things really empty out and we have so few opportunities now i think in modern life to experience the sort of sorcery of the night i would call it and uh, you know i'm a little bit of a witch myself so um, <laughs> that was a um, very incredible part of it after your residency you produced an exhibition with deborah curating practically uh, collaborating. Oh, yes. so it was called Unavoidable <laughs> Twilight, and mm -hmm. it was just a delight to work on. Um, when I hear Christina talking a little bit about nocturnal influences on her work and everything being part of the earth and part of us, I just can't help but think of her work. So if you're not familiar with it, please do look her up. Her drawings are, are very rich and very uh, mythological based, and, and her imagination will take you exactly to the place she is trying to portray. So in the exhibit, we had uh, some beautiful ornithological specimens from, is it Rafael, I want to say Galvez? Rafael Galvez. Yes, mm -hmm. yes in addition to Christina's drawings and a video. Sort of a part research, part incantation, again, of digging into what is found in the, in the physicality of the landscape. And there's a lot of works on gray paper because it is about the coming of the night that was such an influence for me. Has the influence manifested in your present work? The project I'm working at now, I've, I've moved into a studio at the Bakehouse Art Complex, which has its interesting history of being the sort of first industrial bakery in town. And what I realized before that was there's this very important plant that I ended up inadvertently studying called the Kunti, which was a plant of profound influence uh, and essential to indigenous people for thousands of years and then was actually the first industry in Miami 
producing this plant, and it was hugely prevalent part of the Pine Rockland, which is what Miami sits upon still. And so it led me to really think about the landscape that still hides within and underneath. And I've actually now been physically digging holes, <laughs> looking for limestone, and also doing drawings that are related to sinkholes and things like that. So it seems I've gone from above ground to below. And we're I can't so wait to see this. <laughs> what happens next? Yeah, <laughs> me too. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Christina. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. The voices we share on our live radio broadcast from the Everglades reveal the role of creativity in conserving our natural environment. Visit freshartinternational.com to explore other conversations we've captured in the South Florida wilderness. This program is supported in part by artists-in-residence in Everglades and Everglades National Park. Go to AIRIE.org to learn more. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Fresh Art International anywhere you go for podcasts. It means a lot to know you're listening. With your support, we've been sharing these stories since 2011. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation, Locust Projects and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, Tempest Projects, and ARI are just a few of those supporting this podcast. Now is the perfect time to give us a boost. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button. The Knight Foundation will match your donation. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.